Don't gonna, be late to our appointment there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm serious. I yeah. believe that today. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yep. How awesome. Maybe you just had the timer set wrong. There's no timer. It's broke. It's on, it's on, it's what you say. It's on the Lord's time. All right. Well. In the last lecture, what I tried to do was demonstrate how Freud and those who came after him achieved a significant leap in the story that I'm telling of this rise of expressive individualism and psychologized selfhood, and that is the placing of sex and sexual desire at the very heart, not only of how we think of ourselves, but also at the heart of social and cultural dynamics. It's part of the way of explaining why, for example, the LGBTQ movement is today so prominent and powerful in our political imaginations and indeed in the political world in general. Sexual politics, revolutionary sexual politics, the sexual revolution, all point to the fact that sex and sexual desire have become potent forces, not simply at a personal level in society, but at national, political, and even international levels as well. And when we step aside from our cultural moment, where this is sort of the air that we breathe, when we step aside from our cultural moment and ask for a moment, how did this come about? It should strike us as rather odd. Why is it that the most private of human activities now is at the centre of the most public of political debates? Why is private sexual activity now such a matter of great public concern, not just in America, not just in Europe, but across the world as a whole. Well, in order to explain this, we need to go back to an unlikely and somewhat, for most of us, obscure problem at this point, and that is the failure of classical Marxism in the early 20th century might sound a bit odd because the 20th century, of course, was dominated in some ways by the Soviet Union and, to a lesser extent, China. Many of the great political stories of the, certainly the middle, early and middle 20th century, seem to be the triumph of Marxism. So how can I talk here about the failure of Marxism as providing the key to the way politics and political theory has developed in more recent years? Well, the problem was this. It was twofold. The problem involved both the success of Marxism and the failure of Marxism. The success of Marxism, when we look, for example, at the Russian Revolution that strikes us as, well, that seems to be a pretty powerful Marxist movement. For most Marxists at the time, it would have been odd because Russia did not have that most important of things that was necessary for bringing about the revolution. It did not have a developed industrial working class. It was really a peasant-based virtually a feudal society. Marx's theory was, of course, that capitalism would develop to such a point that the industrial working class would be squeezed to the point where they would explode in revolution. 
So why did it happen in a country where there was no developed industrial working class? More than that, why did it not happen in a place like Germany? After the end of the First World War, there was a so-called Spartacist uprising, an attempt to establish a Soviet-style regime in Germany, and it failed. Why did it fail in Germany when Germany had a highly developed industrial working class? That was a question that perplexed the Marxists. More than that, more than that, think about other revolutions that were taking place. 1905, there had been a revolution in Russia that had failed. Soldiers had, only, had overthrown their oppressors only to reinstate them again. Why? And why in the 1920s were the working classes moving to back fascism and Nazism rather than communism and Marxism? Marx, the writings of Marx, really offered no explanation for this phenomenon. Marx just assumed, if you like, that the working class would develop and would develop a revolutionary self-consciousness. He never explained how that was to happen. And that left what we might call a psychological void or gap within Marxist theory that later Marxist theorists, particularly those in the middle years of the decades of the 20th century, were to fill. And they were to fill it by borrowing ideas from guess who? Sigmund Freud. Central figure in this story was the man I mentioned at the very end of last lecture, Wilhelm Reich. Somewhat younger than Freud, he was born in 1897. He didn't die in London like Freud did. He was an Austrian like Freud, but he didn't die in London like Freud did. He died in Pennsylvania, would you believe? Not too far from where I'm giving this lecture. He died in Pennsylvania uh, uh, in prison on fraud charges for selling some weird machine. But his significance doesn't lie in the weird machine and the strange UFO stories and fables that he came to believe in and advocate in later life. His significance lies in the way that he helped to fuse Marxism and Freudianism in the 1920s and 1930s in a way that becomes extremely potent in the 1960s onwards with the so-called sexual revolution. He'd been a junior colleague of Freud in Vienna at one point, but even Freud regarded Reich as too extreme. So how and what does Reich do relative to Freud? Well, Reich makes a key move with Freud's theories that will make Freud very useful to Marxists. I'm going to read you a quotation here from his early work, The Mass Psychology of Fascism. He says this, it becomes apparent that it is not cultural activity itself which demands suppression and repression of sexuality, but only the present forms of this activity. And so one is willing to sacrifice these forms if by so doing the terrible wretchedness of children could be eliminated. What does Reich mean in that little statement? Well, he's accepting Freud's basic point about the trade-off we talked about last lecture, of sexual satisfaction for civilization. But he's giving a distinctive Marxist twist. Remember what I said about Marx a few lectures ago, that for Marx, moral codes were, if you like, uh, a, a sneaky way of the ruling class giving its own values transcendence 
and using those values to keep people down, to keep the oppressed down. Well, what Reich is doing here is he's applying Marx to the idea and saying, yeah, Freud's right that the key to civilization is, if you like, sexual repression. But we need to refract that through a Marxist lens and realize that the specific forms of sexual repression, the specific forms of the moral codes we all deal with, they're actually specific to the class struggle. They're specific to the point in time at which they come. Good example would be, for example, uh, would be monogamous heterosexual marriage. Reich would look at that and say, you know, monogamous heterosexual marriage. Well, Freud would say about it, you know, that's the trade-off for civilization. Reich would say, no, that's a trade-off for bourgeois capitalist civilization. The family, the, uh, the nuclear family, the monogamous heterosexual relationship, that serves the interest of the factory owners who want a stable workforce that isn't threatening them. More to the point, Reich would say, what that does, of course, is it instantiates the authority of the father figure at an early date. So if you ask Wilhelm Reich, if he was here today, and I would say, Dr. Reich, why is it that in 1905, the soldiers in Russia overthrow their masters and only, uh, only, uh, only to reinstate them sometimes later? Reich would say, that's because of the nuclear family. They were brought up to respect the father figure. And we all know that teenagers can rebel against their fathers, but they feel guilty for doing so. And sooner or later, they reinstate the father as an authoritative figure within their lives. And you say, what we see in families, it's kind of a training ground for obedience within society. The czar is like the great father figure. And yes, they challenge the authority of the czar like a teenager might challenge the authority of his father. But ultimately, the teenager will fall into line. So this is how Reich takes Freud and makes him specifically political, if you like. As I said, talking about the family, I've got this quotation here that, uh, that Reich makes uh, about the family. Again, this is from his mass psychology of fascism. He's seeing the family as the source of fascism. What is fascism? It's the worship of the great leader, the great father figure. He says this, the interlacing of the socio-economic structure with the sexual structure of society and the structural reproduction of society take place in the first four or five years and in the authoritarian family. The church only continues this function later. Thus the authoritarian state gains an enormous interest in the authoritarian family. It becomes the factory in which the state structure and ideology are moulded. You want to know why people are fascists, right? It's going to say it's because of the authoritarian family. And as kids grow up, they pass from the family to the church that reinforces uh, this idea as well. All of these institutions, family and church, they're designed to repress the individual and make them obedient members of society. Reich, of course, at this point, stands in a hallowed line of critics of the family. I could have told the story I've told using the characters I've called upon. I could have told it as a story of criticism of the family. Rousseau sends his children to an orphanage. What more of a slap against the family could one think of in practical terms? The great romantics. Many of them didn't like the family. Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley, saw it as enforcing an unnatural monogamy. 
William Blake, the great romantic poet, saw the family as a bar to free love and therefore to human freedom. Marx's sidekick, Friedrich Engels, he was the one who said, you know, the family, that's the essential unit for bourgeois middle-class uh, society. So for Reich then, he stands in a hallowed line of critics of the family, but his criticism takes a very distinctive ideological form as he draws upon Freud and uses him to reinforce the Marxist criticism of society. He says this, then talking about morality. Morality's aim, he says, is to produce acquiescent subjects who despite distress and humiliation are adjusted to the authoritarian order. Thus the family is the authoritarian state in miniature to which the child must learn to adapt himself as a preparation for the general social adjustment required of him later. Most of us, most of us would think of the families as, yeah, that's where we prepare our children to be adults. The task of a parent is to prepare their child to make their own way in the world. The task of a family is to teach them that this kind of behavior is not acceptable. You're going to get into trouble if you behave like that outside. This kind of behavior, this is the sort of behavior you need to model. Mothers and fathers try to be role models for their kids to show them how they can move into society and be part of civilization. Reich would say, I don't dispute that. I don't dispute that. But you are merely tools in doing that of bourgeois society. What you are doing is you are producing, in his own words, acquiescent subjects who will put up with all kinds of distress and grief because you have taught them that that is what they are supposed to do. So Reich is the man then. He's bringing Freud into Marx, and he's using Freud to help explain some of the psychological underpinnings of society that fill in gaps in Marxist theory. Why is fascism attractive to the working classes? Because they've had the bourgeois model of the family imposed upon them and have become again, to use his term, acquiescent subjects who despite distress and humiliation are adjusted to the authoritarian order. And as they leave the home, they look for the great father figure, the Fuhrer, the Duce, the great leader, to supplant, to replace that which they have left behind. That brings me to Reich's greatest and perhaps his most significant work, The Sexual Revolution. It was written in 1936, but if you read it today, you're thinking he's writing in the 1960s. It was 30 years before his ideas gained major political currency and became part of the rallying cry of the rebellions and revolutions in the student world in 1968. But he wrote it in 1936. And in this work, he makes the point that Freud was correct in seeing the role sexual repression had as the basis of civilization but incorrect in seeing the sexual codes of his own day, if you like, as being of universal validity. What Reich wanted to do, as I said earlier in this lecture, was sort of historicize Freud through the lens of Marx. Societies built around the patriarchal family had particular political and social interests, not simply living together in a civilized way, but living together in a civilized way in a particular form, at the heart of which was the nuclear patriarchal 
family. Therefore, therefore, and here Reich makes the sort of the next necessary move. Just remember, Marx was the one who made the point that philosophers merely describe the world. The point of philosophy really is to change the world. Reich makes the Marxist move to transform the world at this point by saying that if sexual codes are a tool by which the oppressors oppress, then at the heart of the political revolution has to be the dismantling those very sexual codes. Here he says this in the sexual revolution. The free society will provide ample room and security for the gratification of natural needs. Thus it will not only not prohibit a love relationship between two adolescents of the opposite sex, but will give it all manner of social support. Such a society will probably conclude that any adult who hinders the development of the child's sexuality should be severely dealt with. Let me repeat that last line. Such a society will probably conclude that any adult who hinders the development of the child's sexuality should be severely dealt with. What a prophecy of the day in which we live. Think about all the debates that go on about uh, sexual education in school, whether the parents have the right to give their kids sex education or whether it should be handed over to the state. Reich is saying here, if you like, it's too important to give to the parents because the parents, the game of the parents is to produce acquiescent subjects. The parents actually should be severely dealt with, he says, if they stand in the way of the kind of liberating sexual education that he himself envisages. He goes on, social concepts of the 19th century, which were defined purely in economic terms, no longer fit the ideological stratifications in the cultural struggles of the 20th century. In its simplest formulation, Today's social struggles are being waged between those forces interested in the safeguarding and affirming of life and those whose interests lie in its destruction and negation. What does he mean there? He's really saying, you know, go back to the 19th century and talk about oppression. And probably people are going to think about oppression in economic terms. Again, to refer to my late great-grandfather. So he died 25 years ago. Ordinary working man sheet metal worker in the industrial heartland of England in the middle decades of the 20th century. If I'd asked my grandfather, what's oppression, granddad? What does oppression look like? I think he'd have said, oppression is not getting an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. Oppression, and I actually remember him telling me this story, oppression is walking down a street in the 1930s looking for work and knowing that there's no work to be had. Think about what my granddad would have been saying there. He's essentially saying oppression is an economic thing. Remember I said that his view of job satisfaction would be he could put bread on the table and shoes on his children's feet and he had the dignity of labour. Well, oppression means that which stops him from doing that. Now think about oppression as it's often thought of today. Oppression is very psychological today, isn't it? It's referring to somebody with the wrong word or the wrong epithet. It's not allowing them to be openly and publicly that which they think they are inside. It's psychological. Oppression has shifted from being economic to being psychological. That's what Reich's saying in the 1930s. Here he's saying, you know, that old economic view of oppression, it doesn't work anymore. 
We need to think of oppression much more intellectually, ideologically, psychologically. Oppression is teaching kids oppressive sexual codes that prevent them from fulfilling their desires and prevent them from being who they really are inside. The great Italian philosopher Augusto del Noce draws the obvious conclusion from all this. He says, it is clear that what today is called the left fights less and less in terms of class warfare and more and more in terms of warfare against repression, claiming that the struggle for the economic progress of the disadvantaged is included in this more general struggle as if the two were inseparable. What Del Noce, who was a conservative philosopher, he's a critic of uh, Reich and of uh, the sort of the neo-Marxism that Reich represents. What Del Noce is saying there is the left now fights on the basis of psychological oppression because it sees the, the codes, the moral codes that make people behave in certain ways as repressive of who they are. And if you want to achieve justice in society, the left says, you need to demolish those codes. That, of course, is why there is such heat about the LGBTQ movement, for example. What is going on there is not simply uh, a, a fight for somebody to be able to express who they are, who they feel they are in the public realm. It's seen as a deeply political struggle because it's all about the way society represses certain feelings, certain desires, certain identities. And Reich is the man who makes that connection in his books in the 1930s, particularly the sexual revolution. So let's summarize this then. Freud, as I said last time, Freud is the man who really paves the way for us thinking of sex as who we are. It's not an activity anymore, it's an identity. My sexual desire fundamentally defines who I am. Reich picks up on this, but he says, you know, sexual codes, as they currently exist, are designed to maintain the current oppressive structure of society. Therefore, political freedom is the same as sexual freedom. And the struggle for political freedom is inseparable from, and in fact, perhaps needs to be prosecuted through the idiom of the struggle for sexual freedom. To end with a quotation from Reich, the existence of strict moral principles has invariably signified that the biological and specifically the sexual needs of man were not being satisfied. Every moral regulation is in itself sex-negating and all compulsory morality is life-negating. The social revolution has no more important task than finally to enable human beings to realize their full potentialities and find gratification in life. For Reich, therefore, the political revolution is inevitably the sexual revolution. And that's why the debates today aren't simply about legitimate forms of behavior. Where do we draw the bounds on legitimate forms of behavior? They're actually about who we think people really are and how we conceptualize the very notion of what it means to be a free human being. And it's some of the manifestations of that that I want to reflect on briefly in the eighth and final lecture. There we go.
say it's not like one of those superhero movies where there's like an after credit scene <laughs> or anything like that, so we don't feel awkward in the end. Interesting stuff, huh? Actually, I'm going to leave this here. So I'm not going to like review the whole video for you because you guys just watched the video, so I'm going to trust you paid attention. But you can see kind of the outline is a lot more discussion-based as we kind of go through it together. We're kind of starting near the end and work our way back to the beginning. We've got some scriptural passages that will work through there. But the first question, the first two work really well together. How would you define oppression? That's one of my favorite parts of this video. Often, um, gosh, it's like the, word, um, uh, like the word tolerance, for example. That word has taken on a different meaning today than it did even 10 years ago. You know, but let's say 25 years ago, it meant something completely different than it does today. So I ask you first, kind of getting our own worldview, how would you define oppression? Not just how the video defined it. How, do you, how would you define it? Yeah, Shana? Well, for me, it's carrying a burden that's too heavy to be carried. Okay. It's okay. oppressive that way. Okay. Uh, I'm not looking at it, I guess, in the worldview because it, it means something different to me because they're kind of esoteric and out there with some weird things. Sure, sure. Okay, so for you, it's a burden. <clears throat> How would anyone else here define oppression? Yeah, right. Paying taxes on their social security. Tax? That's, that's not a joke, though, yeah. yeah. Social security was a tax we paid. <laughs> and now you're being taxed on it. Yes. Yeah. What else? I just said that because it's economic. No, no, and that's, well, that's fine. That's, that's a bit of what he talks about in there. there. There was a point where oppression was, it meant economic oppression, right? Economic. Talk about his granddad's story, you know, back then it wasn't getting an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. Um, it was going out there with the, with the heart of finding a job but not being able to find it, right? Well, how else do we define oppression? I think there's one key thing we're missing. Are we saying Ralph touched on it a little right? You! We'll talk about right later. <laughs> yeah. If I, if I were oppressing you, what would that look like? Not being able to say what you want to say. Okay, there we go. Now we're getting somewhere, yeah? Basically, the people keeping a thumb over them, pushing you down. Without options, yeah. Without options, I like that. What do you What do you mean, Jessica? Just like, just basically like what they're talking about, because you don't fall in line with mainstream. Mm, okay. You, well, it goes back to what we talked about today in church being exiled and everything. That mm -hmm. we're not a part of this world, and especially with it moving so far away from God that you're oppressed into having to believe all this stuff and fall exactly. in line with that. And that's an oppression on its own. Mm -hmm. and, we're, and we're getting pretty far back into some of the other philosophers where it's society being the standard. And society oppresses far more than the government does. Mm -hmm. And because the government's kind of built off of rules and regulations and there's enough people kind of voting. And I'm not saying it's not oppressive, because it certainly <laughs> can be. Uh, but what I am saying is the the tides of what we see in the world changes so greatly, and dare I say, the tides come in tidal waves, if that makes sense. You know, if you're not on board, we're just going to run you over. Yeah. And then back there he said, uh, I wrote down freedom of speech, because that just seems to be something that doesn't exist anymore, right? Freedom of speech. Yeah. Well, when I was in college, yeah. First year of psychology, I don't recall how it came up, but our psychology teacher, instructor, wanted to know how many Christians were in the class. 
and there were about two of us who raised our hands. Yeah. Later, I learned that that was not a good thing to do because he did not believe it. Yeah. And so I believe, although I couldn't prove it, I believe my grade suffered one point because I stood by my Christian beliefs throughout the course. The course was that difficult to anything yeah. Christian, even though it didn't have to be, but because of his worldview, it was. Yeah. And as you'll see, when we, get, when we get to these sections of scripture, and especially the sermon today, I, I, I told Pastor Jonathan my favorite book is First Peter. Absolutely love it. I read it probably every other month. Um, it means so much to me. But you know, you'll be in trials and tribulations all your days here, and it's not because of um, it's not because God hates you. It's because you are indeed a Christian. We're told ahead of time there will be trials and tribulations. Your faith will be um, tried by fire. So there's made more pure than gold. And what they mean by that is they would take gold, and the way that you refine gold is you would heat it up, so then it would heat up and it would turn into a liquid, and all the impurities would float to the top. Then they would scrape it away, and then they would let it cool. Then they would take the gold again, they'd put it in the fire, and then all the impurities would come out again, and they'd scrape the impurities off, and then they'd take it to the side. And what that verse is really saying here is you'll be tried as if being refined by fire and be more pure than gold is you would. You're going to feel the fire a lot. And it's not, again, because God doesn't love you. It's because of the, the strengthening of your faith, almost purifying your faith as those trials and then indeed bring up the impurities. So it becomes, again, more valuable than gold. So we have oppression over here, how we define oppression, because it's more than economic. Yeah? That's, and, and Truman is talking about just these philosophers as things are going on. He's talking about just his granddad. He's not taking into more so our account, because it's more than economic, right? We feel that definitely in the tides of culture. We feel that within our government, even when it comes to taxation, just the way that it operates, it feels oppressive. But then the next question, how is it oppression defined by right? And you got an essence of that, right? What was, what's the answer there? How does right define oppression? Well, one of the things he said was <clears throat> by um, denying a child sexual freedom. Yep. Yep. Oh. And, and we'll dive into that. Yes, yeah. Yep. Well, it's just basically moral codes of the family structure yeah. itself. I think it's right down to the root of the family structure and the father figure. Yep. So, and he gets a lot into that. And he defines it as psychological compared to how us, it's like opposing forces that are necessarily opposing your freedoms, whether it's your freedom of speech, whether it's um, a freedom for what you can do with what you've already earned and you've paid into, whether it's um, just even standing for what you believe in. What he's talking about is it's psychological, that our very, our very foundational structure um, oppresses the, the natural growth kind of of who you are, right? So it becomes a lot more psychological. And we're about to get into this in kind of sense that was already answered. What does Reich blame as the foundational source of fascism and oppression? The family, right? What do you think of that? Awful. He doesn't like it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we already know that the lack of family structure has consequences because Huge. that's one of the things, like, even politically, socially, um, and morally, is what they find in the inner cities where mm -hmm. there isn't a father figure and that there are people who are like single mothers raising multiple children, mm -hmm. and or even if the parents aren't there, then they're off on their own. You already know that crime is up higher, drug use is up higher, yeah. gang um, activity is up mm -hmm. higher, and everything just in those in those situations. Because and the reason why most people join a gang to begin with is because they need a family. 
Yeah. Yeah, the absence of father figures is a huge one. I was reading, uh, mm. I say wonderful study, I don't mean wonderful, but a study that was very insightful um, <laughs> that had to do with especially teens that are raised with lack of, lack of a father figure, but also lack of a father figure in church. If you're part of a family and like the mom takes the kids to church and dad stays home, you know what the percentage chance is that those children go to church as adults? Lower. Four percent. Four percent of those children that come with just mom and dad stays at home will attend church as an adult. It's, it's undeniable. It? What is it when fathers bring their families to church? Oh, it's exponentially higher. It's in like this, it's like upper 70s. I can't remember that one exactly. But that was the one that blew me away. But if fathers are presidents and like it's like seventy five percent or higher, yeah. As a boy, my uh, I was raised as a Roman Catholic, mm -hmm. and my mother, my dad wasn't even involved. My mother would send my brother and me to church. She'd give us each a quarter for the collection box, which we would use to buy cigarettes. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Jeez, we were way we would use. But I, I in later Be years, I thought, <laughs> right. I, I thought in later years what she was not. You know, she wasn't logically, or she wasn't thinking of it. But really, what she said is, "This is kid stuff. When you grow up, you won't have to do it either." Mm -hmm. She yeah. sent us to church. She didn't have this. Uh, sometimes on Christmas, sometimes on Easter, we would we were uh, Christmas and Easter Catholics. Yeah, yeah. And my mother would show up. My dad was usually working. Here again, it was for the kids, mm -hmm. so you didn't take it seriously. And as a result, when I as soon, and in my era, many did this. Mm -hmm. As soon as I was old enough to be able to say no, I left the church. Yeah. I always called myself a Catholic because they gave me a lot of outs when yeah. I made it. But, uh, which Rochelle overcame by years of persistence. Yeah. But, but uh, I, I was not participating, and I couldn't have told you one quote from Scripture. Not yeah, one. Absolutely. We were never taught to go to Scripture. And, and, we're, and dare I say your parents were fulfilling a cultural responsibility? Exactly. At that time, yeah, and we're kind of past that, so to speak. And this is this is a quote from something. This isn't something I believe, but I, I do find it insightful to hear. Is they talk about the decline of the church and like percentage is like, oh, you know, churches are closing their doors and and people aren't coming to church anymore because of the way society is. And it's uh, there was an insightful pastor who said yes, but at the same time, you have to realize now that's not a cultural responsibility. Don't you think that the people that are there are people that want to be there? Compared to the people that were there before, did it so they could have a status in society. It was a check mark before, yeah. So gone are the days where the people that would go where it's a check mark. Therefore, since we don't see them, have we really declined? Is is what they're well, saying? But, yeah. But then on the other hand, the church, I mean, I'm, I'm a broad brush, mm -hmm. has changed too because they're buying into these political, yeah. yes, <laughs> Some, the yeah. sexual revolution, and everything else. So the church is not the same church. It's not. I'm glad you're here, though, because we're, we're not. Yeah, and the, it, I went to school with people that were like pre-seminary and ended up going not to a Lutheran seminary and see where they are now. I'm just like, man, you guys, <laughs> this is crazy. But I say that as we as we go back into this, because we're talking about how we disagree with Reich, right? And what foundationally do we disagree? That families are the foundational source of fascism and oppression. It's like, well, we, we have all the statistics. We understand that. We understand that within our own families, right? Or families of uh, other children, like if your kids have been friends and there isn't a parental figure, whether it's a father figure or a mother figure within that family, sometimes you just see your kids ask you questions about their friends and you interact with their families. You're like, oh, man, 
Some of this is pretty tough. Yeah. One of the things that we should remember too is in the Old Testament, God's one of God's greatest curses was I'll scatter your families. And that's what's happening. And how sad that is because and that points us to how important the family is. And yeah, I would be very wary of uh, God cursing us. Oh no, no, I that. don't no no, I don't view no, I <laughs> yeah. don't view it that way. I'm mm -hmm. just saying in the Old Testament, he told the Old Testament people said, I will scatter your families. We're doing it to ourselves. We're we're taking the the admonition truly from God to keep mm -hmm. families together and to stay with your families. Mm -hmm. And all the things he did point out that families were to stay together and that we were live close to one another mm -hmm. if you can. Yeah. But the, the very nature of life has done that. So yeah, it, it wouldn't be I wouldn't <clears> say God, <throat> you know, again, did that to us. Yes, he did scatter the people like the Tower of Babel. What I what yes. I would what I would say is is the, the fall into sin has naturally divided us. And by the allowance of sin, right, that has allowed us to be scattered right. and to feel the need for what it needs to be as part of a family. Pastor Johnson said something beautiful today that families are united by blood, which is true. I have my children, they are of my blood. But the, the blood that unites us as a family as Christians is the blood of Jesus. So to say you're my sister in Christ, you're my brother in Christ, it's real because we're united by the blood of Christ. It's if I say you're my brother, it's like we don't have the same dad, we don't have the same mom. That's really kind of odd. But we can honestly say that we are family. Real quick, yeah. Um, I don't want to push you on the spot. No problem. We, we, uh, we know something about Freud's background and where, how he came to be what he is, or was. Yeah. Something about Mark, Marx, but I don't know anything about Wright. What kind of a family did he come from? Was he another privileged brat that grew up kind of sicko? Or? Um, I, I couldn't tell you offhand, but uh, most, a uh, general rule for most of these philosophers, they did not grow up poor. They grew up very right. rich. Mm -hmm. yeah. The reason I ask that is <laughs> the, the things he opposes are so fundamental exactly. to the structure of mankind. And he must have come from some desperate uh, privileged society or, or something, because he had no understanding of the real world. Well, he was a dream of the Germans. They have the strong uh, father figure, and they, exactly. there's, a, there's a whole uh, thread of study on the father figure in mm -hmm. Germany, and they uh, and uh, there were some studies done after World War II that actually blamed the authoritarian family for yep. you know the rise of uh, Nazism and all this. Well, I don't know the merits of it. I mean, you can argue it back and forth, but I think I think what I think the fundamental distinction here is uh, that everything centers on defining oppression. Well, mm -hmm. families are oppressive. Well, is that really is that really a, a, a meaningful discussion or is it more meaningful to step back to what Freud decided Mm -hmm. yeah, okay, uh, yeah, maybe there are some uh, inhibitions or oppressions, but that they're necessary. So yeah. what is the necess necessity of the family? Uh, and that's the, uh, that's the discussion we more commonly get into. And uh, I think in the, um, in, in the political arena, I just think that has less and less um, uh, weight behind it. I mean, that used to be... Uh, in politics, the uh, nuclear family, that was kind of a given, and yeah. there was a certain form to it and all this. Now we've kind of redefined the family, mm -hmm. and, uh, and and uh, it doesn't look like our uh, political efforts are necessarily towards what you would call a nuclear family, but it's yeah. more of a government-dependent, uh, you know, facsimile yeah. uh, replacement of the family. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and, and that's where you get... Uh, 
you know, you, you can read all the studies of, you know, of the effects of uh, starting with the, uh, you know, the, the uh, starting in the 1960s and the rise of crime and then the great society programs and it's ah, so, 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 so the, these, these are the useful discussions. Yeah. What yeah. do we need to have an orderly and productive society? Mm -hmm. Not like who's oppressed. You, yeah. Okay, if you're oppressed and then you, you become an unproductive uh, uh, yahoo that uh, adds nothing of value to society, what, what have we gained by conquering oppression? Sure. Maybe and, and we some, need to be discussing. Something that was significant that, that he said in this, which this made me balk, was um, uh, Essentially, Reich is saying uh, sexual education should be a matter of state and not a matter of family. <laughs> no way. <laughs> not in my house. <laughs> not, not with what I learned in public school anyway. Um, and and I, I say that to, to go on board with what you're saying. This is another thing that I got to get off this topic because I have to leave soon. I want to hit a little bit of scripture before I go. Is um, Along with those studies that I was reading and listening to, there was one about um, uh, governmental assistance. So what he's talking about here being a matter of state. It's become a met, um, not in a bad way, has it become a matter of state to care for the orphans and widows. That is a good thing. Mm -hmm. what, has, what has happened, though, is there's been more and more programs to essentially fund single mothers rather than, uh, you would say, an educational program to try and keep families together, if that, if that makes any sense. And it's not, it's funny, it's not that one's bad. It's just a reflection of what's going on right now. Well, part, part of it, too, is the victimization of every every. Every political group. Right. Now we're the victims, and now we're the oppressed, and now you owe us. Yep. Right. You know whatever it is, unique uh, privilege or money or reparations or something. Exactly. You even talk about, um, you know, we, we say politically speaking, absolutely, and that every but everyone's a victim when it comes to politics, regardless of what side you're on, whether you're blue or you're red or you're white, whatever you want to say, whatever. Now, doesn't matter who you're voting for. Everyone says they're, they're the victim. Which is a sad thing to say. Can someone open to me? To me. Don't open to me. Don't keep those closed. Open uh, your Bibles. That's what I'm trying to say. Proverbs 14. If someone's got that one, if someone can go to Proverbs 22 for me. Can you read Proverbs 14, 31? No, no, no. no. We're going to hit these. Then, then I, got, I have to go. Yeah. Um, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Mm -hmm. Unpack that for me. Read it one more time for everyone. Whoever who oppresses the poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous and the needy honors him. Mm -hmm. He's providing for those. Absolutely, yeah. What makes um, but he who is generous to the needy honors him? So whoever oppresses a poor man does what? Insults his maker. I love, I love to hear that. And what it's uh, a lot of what it's saying, and I, I like how it pairs with what Reich is saying. Reich is saying, according to this, it's just another device used by the church to form and manipulate people into a mold. Mm -hmm. Right? Because there's your big authoritarian father figure there. Right? If I were to, essentially, and it's, it, it's what goes backwards on me. If I were to oppress you, I'm insulting God who created you. But instead of I'm to honor you, I'm honoring the one, um, honoring the needs of you, I honor the one who created you. So it's just kind of a, a backwards part. Go ahead. Who had Proverbs 22.16? Go to this one. I like this one a lot. Go ahead. I have it. Oh, please. He who gains the oppressing, who, he who gains by oppressing the poor or by bribing the rich shall end in poverty. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to read my translation a little bit because it uses this word. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. So what does that mean? Well, it's, it's, more, than, it's more than don't be greedy, right? When you are greedy, you'll only end in poverty. It's about yourself, but it's not just about your pocketbook, is it? Yeah. Whoever oppresses the poor will end will in themselves end in poverty. And that's talking about the spirit. Absolutely. It's talking about your faith and your spirit. And that one section over here that was in Luke, that I'll just kind of summarize for you, it's when Jesus returns to Galilee, you know, after the, the 40 days of trial, right, in the wilderness. And he comes back filled with the Holy Spirit. And he announces in the synagogue that reading from Isaiah, which was this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight of the uh, recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free. So we'll go with that and I ask that quick I guess I don't ask the question. Oh, what's Jesus' relationship to the oppressed? And it's essentially this freedom for prisoners, proclamation of the good news, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. And it doesn't have anything. Uh, oh God, really go. We didn't really get into a lot of the other questions about like sexual identity and the psychological needs and things like that. But um, what an insightful video, huh? I guess it's, that's the last thing I'll say. I didn't really build into where I wanted to go with it, but that's fine. That's fine. Answer the questions yourself. An hour and a half plus. The video was longer than I predicted, and I watched it. So thank you for joining us online. Thank you for being here. Let's close our. Um, Let's have our time together in prayer. Say, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you created us. You are just and indeed a wonderful creator who's endowed us with such a wonderful need and, and realization of the need for you. We thank you for, for placing us here and for a lot of the things you've put into place, even though um, a lot of the world seems to rebel against. But Lord, we thank you for families, whether families united by blood, father, mother, sister, brother, or families united by your blood. Here is the church and uh, to help those that are in need. Thank you for this time together, and thank you for the freedom that you grant for us through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray all this in your name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Thank you, God. All right, yeah, thank you. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.